Welcome back to Pod is a Woman. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. And a lot has happened over this past week. You got that right. I know we were all texting on Friday night at the loss of a legend. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Supreme Court Justice, who we all have looked up to for all of the equality that we had when working in the White House, died. This was unexpected news, and I know we were all taken aback. When I saw the alert come across, I instantly broke into tears. I had my two little ones with me, and I just thought about all that she meant for us as women and the fight for equality and for, you know, marginalized communities. And the giant that this tiny little 87-year-old woman was, it's it's heartbreaking. It was one of those moments where, you know, I didn't know her personally. I didn't have that honor, but where you literally gasp when you get the notification on your yeah. phone. Like I, I literally gasped and I, I was here in my home alone and just kind of started pacing because it, it was so monumental on so many different levels. But wow, what a legacy she leaves behind. I mean, it just feels like another blow, like in this increasingly scary time that we're in, in our country for us to have lost her and to know that she held on and she understood what her leaving this earth and there being a vacancy on the Supreme Court would mean. And upon hearing this news, we also heard that she had and her dying wish said to her granddaughter that she wanted her seat to not be filled until after the election. That was her her last dying wish. And the significance of the fact that she was thinking about us all the way to the end and thinking about our democracy yeah. and upholding the rights that she worked her entire life for. This, this woman worked while she was battling cancer until the very last day. And those were her last words. It was so profound. You know, when I look at my lifetime and my mom's lifetime and how many fights that she fought so that we could have what we have, her legacy is so personal that like you, Darian, I was in tears. You know, the stakes of this election were already so significant. And to me, I mean, immediately I was on the phone with a folks going, we need to be phone banking every single weekend. And that is what Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have done for us. You know, the thing I love about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and I think we have to honor that she is the first woman who's going to lie in state at the U.S. Capitol, only the second Supreme Court justice to receive this honor. RBG gained notoriety by taking on the issue of equality under the law, but she did it in creative ways, including taking men's inequality to the court. Like, for example, when women could buy beer at 18 and men couldn't buy beer until 21, you know, this is a case that shows the inequality and it shows the burden of this supposed responsibility that's put on women. You know, my my mom, you guys know, but um, my parents had a child in high school and my mom never had the choice to raise that child. Um, she was forced to give that child up for adoption, her firstborn child. And Darian, you and I know like the pain that that is. And for my mom, the rest of her 
life. She cried every birthday. I didn't know until I was 21 years old the pain that she had gone through. My mom taught me to have a voice and to be a strong woman because she saw people like Ruth Bader Ginsburg stand up for her rights when she had no voice. And so for me, it was very personal and like profound that the only reason that I'm able to raise a strong son in a position where I was in the White House giving, like I literally gave birth while running the NATO and G8 summits was because Ruth Bader Ginsburg fought for that. And I'll be damned if we don't do everything we can to fight for her legacy. And I think you're right, Johanna. I mean, just hearing your story and you can hear in your voice how much of an impact that had on your mother, but also on you and the way that you live your life and, you know, the impact that it has on how you're raising Hugh. And that goes so much to say, you know, this one person, this one person who fought to ensure that women across this country, you know, without a male co-signer could have a mortgage, get a checking account, just like basic rights from, you know, having a business loan or a credit card, getting your own birth control, not having to worry about whether you're going to have employment while you're pregnant. You want those sorts of rights for your children and especially for my daughters, but we take those for granted so often that she is the one who paved the way for us to have those. Yeah, well, and I remember... When I got married at 25, I remember some women in my circles judged me because I wasn't feminist enough, right, to be married at 25. But Ruth Bader Ginsburg was actually married at 21. She had kids, right? She was like the model of, yes, she can do it all. And that was, you know, another thing that I didn't want to give up, like, the experience of, you know, getting to be a wife and a mother? Well, I mean, you think about that, and you're talking about getting married at 25. And at 21, she was in law school, first in her class. She was taking care of her husband, who had just left military service and was recovering from cancer. She was taking notes for him in his class. She was taking care of a young daughter at home. And even when they transferred, she remained, you know, first in her class at Columbia. All of this while caring for an ailing husband, taking care of a young child, she really did epitomize what it means to do it all. And she also protected people's rights to have their version of what do it all means, right? Because when we're talking about everything being on the line right now, Roe versus Wade, marriage equality, protections for the LGBTQ community, DACA, and more. So when it comes to her legacy, she protected our right to choose. And I think, you know, Alejandra, to your point, with regard to her legacy, that's what's so hard is like, this is a one-two punch, because we can't even mourn her properly. We can't honor this woman for the mother that she was, for the woman that she was, for the wife that she was, for all of the things that her life meant to this country and to people in this country, because we have to turn around and address that the Republicans have already made it really crystal clear that they are planning to fill this seat before the inauguration. Well, that's the thing on social media, you know, as everyone was tweeting their deep mourning and deep sense of loss immediately, 
You could see it being politicized. You knew that people were furiously trying to figure out what the next play was and going against what it is that they had said in the past, just preparing to for the hypocrisy that was coming. You know, Trump just tweeted that he's announcing his nominee for the Supreme Court on Saturday. I mean, they're just, they're jamming this through or they're trying to. Full steam we have Yeah, we have two GOP senators, Murkowski and Collins, that have said that they're objecting to holding a floor vote before the election. But, you know, we we were wondering what Romney was going to do, and he's supporting it now, going ahead with a vote. So we're we're definitely at a place where we're seeing folks take advantage of this moment. That's the thing. And I love that, Alejandro, because that's the thing that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was fighting her whole life was an abuse of power, right? Like, so that people had equality. And I always say, you know, the inequality, it's like when one person has less power, right, you can do heinous things to them. And so I really believed that whether it's Me Too or it's all about equality and power. And so to see this absolute abuse of power. Literally, we have not mourned Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Mitch McConnell comes out with a statement saying, like, pretending that he was not against pushing a court nominee through almost a year before an election saying, oh, we're going to get this done right now. You know, to to do that to a woman who knew the gravity of power is just despicable. It is hypocritical. It is egomaniacal. And I am so fed up with that part of politics that this just became the most important election we could possibly be fighting for. I mean, how could you not look back on Merrick Garland and the attempt at President Obama to fill that Justice Scalia seat? And that was nine months before the election. We're talking about, what, 40 days yeah, literally. And and by the way, we don't even have the funding to get all the way through the end of the year. Right. So they're going to have to extend funding or there's potentially government shutdown. And that's the thing is the Republicans shut down the government over virtually everything we did in the Obama administration. And now they're going to expect us to keep the government open, to keep everything running on, you know, like we don't see the hypocrisy in this. But uh, you know what? That's the thing. It's like, I don't know if anyone expects that we don't see the hypocrisy in it. Because even Mitch McConnell's statement, like, he didn't deny that he said it. It's on video. Yeah. You know, like, th- there's no denying that he he's going completely against what he said. I think at this point, it's like, all guns are blazing. No one even cares if they look like hypocrites. It's just brazen at this point. Yeah. yeah. It's just a complete power play. But, you know, the the stakes have been raised. Democratic donors have smashed fundraising records ever since Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, funneling more than $90 million to candidates and progressive groups. But what can we do as Democrats to really push back on this? You look at a judiciary that now has 200 Trump-appointed federal judges you're looking at a Supreme Court that's likely going to be 6-3 in the conservative majority. Even if one of those ju- justices crossed over, they would still have a 5-4 majority. And what do we have? What tools do we have other than fundraising to combat this? We got folks on the Senate. Yeah. You know, yeah. right now there are some seats that we can potentially pick up that are very close. In Arizona, 
Democrat Mark Kelly is really looking favored to win, which would shrink the GOP's majority in a really crucial moment and complicate um, the confirmation of this Supreme Court nominee. But the interesting thing about a lot of these candidates is even though sometimes they're neck and neck and even ahead of the GOP candidate, they have been struggling with fundraising. And so I think that's why a lot of these efforts right now to funnel money into these races is really, really critical. That's right. No, and it is. We have we have some women we could get elected here, too, which would be amazing. MJ Hager, who we've already, already talked about from Texas, who would be an, a, a war veteran who would get elected to the Senate. I mean, this is the thing, is that a lot of people in this country, like, we have let the power be grabbed by those who are abusing it. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we need right now to fight back, not just by going into the streets, but by voting. And people keep asking me this. You guys, I'm sure, are getting the same. Like, can we actually win? And I'm like, the numbers are on our side, right? If every single person turns out, we will win. We could win the Senate. We could actually look at what a representative government looks like. We could actually right some of these abuses of power. But if we don't show up, if we don't turn out, we will lose. And Donald Trump will be president for another four years. And we will see power grabs that are even more extreme because this is what has happened. And I think, you know, you're right in that we need to elect the right the right people and we need to make sure that their values are ones that align with ours. And one of the issues that will more than likely be brought up on this new Supreme Court is healthcare. And we're looking at Trump making a healthcare speech this week with 200,000 people dead. What is there left to say? Well, I just saw a number today that just floored me. COVID is now the fourth largest mass casualty event in U.S. history, surpassed yeah. only by the Civil War, World War II, and the 1918 flu pandemic. I mean, think about that. Now, all of these deaths were preventable, but then it's, somehow they're st- still not connecting with a lot of folks. I was just on a socially distant walk with a friend this past weekend, and he was talking about how, well, COVID's being exaggerated. This is an educated young person living in L.A., No one's arguing that the 200,000 number is not made up, but somehow, you know, this misinformation campaign is still connecting with a lot of folks. Until they have a personal experience, it's almost like it's not reality, right? But we shouldn't have to wait for every single American to have a personal experience. And this is all connected because, Darren, you talk about the fact that healthcare will go before the Supreme Court, they're thinking in November. So... COVID is considered, can be considered a pre-existing condition. And the pre-existing condition clause is one of the pillars of Obamacare. So what does that mean for over the 6 million people who've now had COVID? Well, and people who think that the Republicans are going to protect them. I mean, this is the thing. It's real for my family. It's it's not always affordable, right? When you're living in the Midwest and this is a very expensive rate to now pay for health care that will actually cover you so you don't go bankrupt, it's expensive. And so, you know, they'll say, oh, how's Obamacare working? Well, the truth is every 30 seconds an American was going bankrupt because they didn't have health insurance. So here we are now where we may move back to that period of time with no pre-existing existing condition, you know, uh, clause. And, and the reality for Americans is 
if you think that Republicans are going to protect you, look no further than have we actually gotten COVID tests that work in a timely fashion? No, we should have gotten COVID tests for every single person that work in a timely fashion. And right now, the only people who are getting their COVID results back in a timely fashion are the people who are paying for it. That's the system that we're going to go towards, and it will not work for the vast majority of Americans. Not having health insurance has a ripple effect on how you're able to adequately protect yourself and have preventative care. And we now look at this, Alejandra, to your point, not having preventative care, not having appropriate regulations, even now as you both are in California experiencing these wildfires, if this starts to affect your breathing or your lungs, is this going to be considered a pre-existing condition? Well, and how dare anyone tell me that they are for life, but we can't regulate water, we can't regulate air quality, we can't make sure that our kids are actually safe and healthy. And I truly believe that we have for too long let powerful men divide women on issues that we would largely all agree on, which is that we want to take care of children. And as we talk about healthcare and public health, you know, our next guest has a very strong opinion about this. It's Gina McCarthy, who was the EPA administrator under President Obama. She ties public health to environmental policy. That's something she's very passionate about. She also has a lot to say about the current state of wildfires in California and more. So let's just jump to that interview now. Gina McCarthy is the president and CEO of the NRDC Action Fund and served as the 13th administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency under President Obama. Thank you for being here with us today. Uh, It's terrific to be here. Thanks for having me. Johanna and I are in Southern California, and there are still massive wildfires here burning. On top of the fact that we're in a respiratory pandemic, our air quality has been literally teetering between hazardous and unhealthy for the past week. We've all been in our homes. You've made a point to frame environmental policy as a public health issue. Why has that been your focus? Well, because I think for too long, climate has been really looked at as some kind of a planetary problem which makes it pretty hard for people to engage personally in it. And I just think if we're really looking for the kind of change that climate change requires, then we have to get everybody involved. We have to make sure they understand that it's about them and their families. And and I've been working in the environmental world for a long time, uh, more than I care to admit. And and really, I be, the, what motivates people, I think, mostly to sort of sit up and take notice and, and then to act is when it really personally impacts them and their, their families. And so I think it's hugely important to focus on the health impacts that we're both experiencing and likely to impact, likely to experience if if we don't take action on climate quickly. And it couldn't be more apparent than what we're seeing today. I'm telling you, we were chatting a little bit before the podcast started, but it's just uh, amazing. We're in in the middle of a sort of beginning of a fall that's full of extreme weather disasters around the country in the middle of a, you know, respiratory pandemic, both of which are are hitting systemically marginalized communities the hardest. And we are really facing just multiple disasters that ought to make people aware 
that, you know, they have to stop listening to politicians and start focusing on science and, and their own eyes and what's happening in their own lives. Yeah, exactly. And I, I'm here in Southern California with Alejandra. It's Johanna. And yeah. um, I have an eight-year-old son. So we walk outside and we have ash literally flying in our faces. But on the, the days that the fires were really raging here, I saw Breitbart with the story saying that it was all because we hadn't had enough prescribed burns. Bjorn Longberg of the Copenhagen Consensus Center said it has fairly little to do with climate change. It has almost everything to do with the fact we haven't managed our forest well. We haven't done <laughs> prescribed burns. We, we haven't ensured that these fires won't burn out of control. If we did prescribe burning, we could in a few years reduce the fire risk dramatically and get people's lives pretty close to normal. So I'm just curious, is there any truth to that? Well, there is truth to the fact that forests need to be managed. There's literally no truth to the fact that climate change wasn't an underpinning of what we're seeing happening in California today. There's li- it, it's, it's ludicrous. We're talking about 5 million acres. Now, really, do we think that that's because we failed to rake up the leaves and throw them away properly? That's, that, that is a landmass that is the size of larger the state of Connecticut. I mean, we are talking not about just marginal lands that used to be, you know, used to be uh, deserts or forests. We're talking about now uh, land in California and Oregon and Washington, some of which are are nipping at the heels of of this president's precious suburbs. So this is not about just forests. This is not about marginal lands. This is not about forest management. This is about an August that was record-breaking in terms of its heat. This is about a drought that's been going on really since 2011. This is fundamentally about a change in our climate that is, that is really turning the Western U.S. into a fiery landscape, literally enveloped in toxic air pollution. And if you don't think this is harming people, not just those directly impacted by the fire, you'd be all wrong because we saw the haze over where I live in Boston. You can see it heading as far as, as, the, as Europe. This is a staggering uh, sort of reminder of, of what can happen if we don't pay attention and act now. Right. And Gina, I mean, in just hearing what you have been saying in sort of along the lines of what we were talking about prior to, um, 2020 has been wild. I mean, we started off with these historic wildfires in Australia and then have seen some of the wildest weather phenomena this year from polar vortexes on the East Coast in May to the um, storms that came through the Midwest this summer and the most active hurricane season on record. So now we're looking at these fires and we still have a couple of months left to go in this year what are you most concerned about yeah well i think it's it's you know it's it's not over yet i mean we are seeing hurricanes that simply are piling one on the other and i think the thing that i worry the most about is is actually the continued nonsense from breitbart and others that really turn people's attention away from the things that they should be focused on. And so we have a pandemic that we've got to get our arms around. If that doesn't cry for new leadership, 
I don't know what does. I mean, we're crying for the loss of nearly 200,000 people. And when we're here quibbling about raking leaves, you know, you're talking about land masses being engulfed in flames in a way that, that looks like I'm, I'm looking at the Martian landscape, not the United yeah. States of America. And so we have to stop letting people distract us by ridiculous statements and just start paying attention to what we all know and see and feel. You know, we need leadership in, in, the, in the United States now at a time when, when without it, we are talking about even more yeah. substantial loss of lives. And, and where climate is concerned, loss of time, yeah. which is absolutely essential. Now I'm hearing from folks who get climate change, and their question isn't how do we get everybody else to get it. Their question is, are we too late? Right. You know, so I cannot allow us to turn to denial to most people understand it, and then to people not doing anything because they're afraid it's too late, because it's not too late. You're right. And it is. I mean, Lumborg, who was quoted, he doesn't he doesn't have a, you know, any expertise yeah. in climate change. He has a Ph.D. in political science. Yeah. Right. So how do we fight that disinformation that's out there that has people doubting the science? Yeah, I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of change in, in, in people, Republicans and Democrats, but to a great extent, we're seeing real change in younger Republicans. And so it's, we're at a time of change. I mean, look at, look at what's happening here. You know, President Obama has, has really adjusted his plans on climate considerably because people are talking to him. People are worried about this. It's not, you know, that he knows that it's now a really big deal. And he also gets that it's inherently inseparable from issues of systemic racism, which are also issues that are finally coming to a head where we might have an opportunity to address this in a systemic way. And so I'm kind of hopeful in a way that these things are happening so that a, a new president with real leadership can come in and not just address the pandemic, but look at how you address science in a, in a more strategic way. Uh, rebuild our science credibility in the federal government, but more importantly, apply it to the issue of climate change because people exactly. are sick and tired. Of, of having them deny what they can see for themselves. And they're sick and tired of not having a federal government that's working for the people instead of polluters. That's right. And I'm kind of done with this. And I think everybody else is. It's nonsense. And to that point, you've called Joe Biden's climate plan the strongest you've ever seen from any president in U.S. history. Yeah. And he has endorsed the Green New Deal. Can you talk our yeah. listeners through what the framework of the Green New Deal is and what exactly you see being at stake in this election? Yeah, I'm happy to. You know, fundamentally, the Green New Deal is a recognition, a recognition of what I just said, that climate change needs to be acted on. But we have to do it in a way that also protects, especially those most vulnerable, the black community, the brown community, when we're talking about poor people. I mean, we are talking about those communities feeling the crunch both on climate, the hottest because they're always in the first to get hit and the worst, but also being disproportionately disadvantaged by traditional pollutants because with systemic racism, these communities have been absolutely left behind in terrible housing, no ability to have 
have good places to go walk and bike and green spaces. You are talking about people who don't have access to healthy food. So if you think about it, the Green New Deal and the Biden plan is all about connecting those dots, all about understanding that if you want a healthy future, if you want to address the inequities in income that are really holding us back and improve the lives of those most vulnerable, then you don't just look at reducing greenhouse gases. You look at reducing greenhouse gases with solutions that drive the economy forward, that build it, that make it more sustainable and stable, that grow the jobs of the future. You do it by investing in clean energy and doing it in a way that centers both justice and equity. And if you do that, you build a world where all of us benefit, a world where the United States can have leadership again, both domestically and internationally, a world where we can once again be confident of our government and know that we can move it forward. So Joe Biden spent a huge amount of time with environmental justice community advocates talking about how to get this right. He spent huge amounts of time with labor, assuring them that, that his support of a Green New Deal means that we're, gonna, we're going to leave no worker behind, that workers are the backbone of the future, and we are going to find a way to get access to union jobs, good pay, build everybody up, and do that by investing in the future we want not just taking pot shots yeah. at the future that at the present in a way that will destroy our government and our economy, just like this administration has so effectively done. That's right. I remember I went with President Obama to Copenhagen yeah. and, um, you know, the Chinese were very much trying to derail any sort of agreement. Right. And yep. finally, they got to the Paris Agreement and led right the world to get 200 nations to agree to cut greenhouse emissions. And so now the Trump administration has already notified the United Nations that they're intending to pull out of this, which um, is, of course, the day after the election. So, you know, I have I have two questions, really. Has has China now gotten the chance to lead on this? So are we losing to China? And what happens if a Democrat does try to get us back on track? Are we already off track in that leadership role? Well, if you look at you know, Joe Biden's plan, one of the things that he really talks about is investing in, in technologies, clean energy technologies. The reason for that is that the answer to your question is that China is kicking up at this moment on clean energy. We don't have the capabilities that we should have because nobody is investing them at the federal level. And you guys know that when, you know, when the federal government starts investing and, and new technologies, that's when you grow new businesses and new jobs. So while we're doing wonderful in terms of embracing clean energy across the states, because it's, it's basically cheaper and it's better for everybody and helps us achieve a healthier future, but we're not, we're not yet where we need to be in terms of manufacturing all of the pieces of those technologies in the United States because we have an administration that wants to deny climate change and, hold, and, and turn us back to the dirty fossil fuels that got us here. 
And instead, what we really need to think about is how do we retain, it, once again, grab that leadership and retain. The only way to do that is with great ideas like, like our existing Biden's plan, which is to really invest in clean energy, to really invest in workers here in the United States, to buy products that the United States manufactures, and then to challenge China. You know, they are continuing to basically assert their ability in provinces across that country to, to invest in coal, and they have something called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is their ability to begin to invest in, in uh, coal technologies, a lot of coal technologies being constructed in other countries. It's exactly opposite of the relationship we had with China mm -hmm. under the Obama administration and our ability to work together to recognize that climate change benefits neither China nor the U.S. nor India. And we went into Paris understanding that we had to work together to provide leadership across the world since we were the biggest polluters across the world. And we've just abandoned that responsibility as well as the opportunity to lead in clean energy. You know, I think you, you'd remember that President, one of President Obama's, you know, favorite things he said, at least when I was hanging around him, was that when we embrace climate change in a clean energy future, we are going to be the strongest country in the world. That's right. And retain yeah. And we've just given it up. It's as if it's yeah. a joke. It's not a joke. It's sad. Absolutely. And as somebody who helped craft a lot of these regulations, I, I'm sure it also must be very painful to watch. And while we're talking about the Trump administration turning us back on climate change, I wanted to ask you about something that current EPA chief Andrew Wheeler said that in a second term for Donald Trump, he would focus more on pollution cleanups in disadvantaged communities than on climate change. The New York Times has reported that the Trump administration has moved to reverse or replace over 100 different environmental rules, again, many of which you helped craft. What are some of the key regulations that have been weakened or eliminated altogether? Yeah, well, it would be a lot easier to talk about the ones that haven't, mm. although I can't think of any. Mm. Um, you know, this administration <laughs> has gone after every rule of the Obama administration. And, you know, uh, and, and let, me, let me be a little more specific. Basically, the clean water rule that was designed to protect 130 million people's water supply, that no longer exists. We're talking about the clean power plan that was designed to achieve a 30% uh, reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, maybe even a little more than that. And instead they traded it off to something that will, will cost lives, cost more, and get maybe a 1% reduction over that period of time. You know, it, it just goes on and on. The mercury uh, rule that basically is already fully complied with, it's a, it's a rule that required um, our utilities to stop discharging a neurotoxin mercury into the air that gets into our food supply and damages mostly children and growing fetuses. And that was, was taken off the block, um, essentially. Uh, so it just goes on and on and on and on. And, and it's sort of unheard of because every change in administration, you expect new policies. You just don't expect a total dismantling of everything that the prior administration did. And to relook at NEPA and, and the National Environmental Policy Act and other fundamental things on, on the science 
uh, end of the spectrum, which really undermine the entire credibility of the federal government. So there's a lot of work that's going to have to be done by a new administration. But, you know, the only good news, there's a couple of good news pieces, and I hate to, you know, at a time when good news seems to be consuming us, right. I give you two bright spots. One Please is do. they're terrible at, they're terrible at rulemaking. Um, <laughs> they just don't pay attention. <laughs> they just don't pay attention to the law or to the science or to data. So, uh, you know, NRBC as an organization has been, you know, suing them and has, has a lot of other places when they dismantle rules in a way that is illegal, that doesn't properly, you know, look at the, the law or the science. And, and we've won over 90% of those cases, and we're wow. talking about a lot of cases. Yeah. So, so they, they just allow the added. But secondly, we've not seen that same kind of, of disingenuous contempt um, at the state or local level, even from Republican governors, because they, they have to embrace clean energy because it just makes so much sense. They can't be aloof and in the White House, you know, with all big walls around it and, and talk about how climate change is real and we really like cold, do you mind going back to it? You know, it's just not competitive anymore. So the good news is that change is continuing to happen and mayors are a big part of that change. They're doing a lot of terrific work. So on, on the clean energy side, we still have you know, a really strong foundation to build on. And, and we know that we have a lot of work to do at EPA and, and, and the Department of the Interior and Department of Transportation. I mean, you name it, lots of work needs to get done. But I have great faith in the civil servants that will remain there. And, and hopefully with the change in administration, we're going to be able to recoup the losses and, and even not just return to what we had proposed, but like the, as in the case of the clean power plant, it's not aggressive enough anymore because we've already done so much already. Right. So, so there's opportunities and you can't lose hope, that's for sure. Well, Gina, you give us some hope after everything that we have gone through this year, and we just appreciate it. And, you know, we want to give you um, an opportunity as we close our interview out to talk about something that you recently put out a statement on, and that's the passing of a true giant in the Supreme Court of Justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, you put out a statement this weekend, and I just want to ask you, what does her legacy leave for women and Americans across the country? Wow. <laughs> Justice Ginsburg has a couple of huge legacy items, and you know that she was just a relentless defender of both our democracy as well as gender equality. You know, she just... She just helped to widen every woman's vision of, of who we are and who we can be. You know, she enlarged our laws and, and made sure that they were, they were based on the values that we all share and, and, and helped us think better about what we could become as a nation. She really showed just unwavering judicial integrity and, and she had such an expansive mind and, and a terrific temperament. And she was human. You know, she, she showed that you can make life work. You can have a strong relationship with loved ones and family and have just a tremendous career. And, and she just showed such defense of civil rights and environmental protection 
that it was uh, it was just she brought a um, just a, a, a wonderful vision, I think, and reality to every woman out there who's thinking about what they can do or can't do and how they can have it all. And she gave up nothing of herself uh, or her personal life. She just put everything she had into everything she did, and she was quite amazing. She was truly, truly amazing, and we will be feeling her loss for years to come, I think. But so many women are benefiting from who she was and her leadership. And we just want to thank you for your time today and for your leadership in this space. So thank you so much for joining us. We're truly honored. Thank you very much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Well, that was certainly a powerful interview with Gina McCarthy. What did you two take from it? I mean, the thing that I thought was powerful was she was basically saying, you know, the very same people who are doubting that climate change existed now realize that climate change does exist and now say, is it too late to act? And it's kind of like, if not now, when? Right. And she's giving us kind of all of the tools to say, you know, to some of these political scientists who think that they know that climate change is not happening, that it is actually happening. And we know that, right? There's story after story about how climate change is affecting our environment, our health, and the reality that we're living in. And so I think she gave us the imperative to act now, both in the election and in getting involved in every way we can to limit our footprint. I think you're right. I look around and I don't know how any person in good conscience can look around at what is happening in this country and around the world and continue to deny that climate change exists. I thought it was really interesting when she talked about the fact that one of the things we have going for us right now is that the Trump administration is so bad at riding their road. (laughs) I think she said lousy. Lousy. That really stood out to me because... You know, if there's any silver lining is, you know, they are basically weakening our rules and protections at such an alarming clip. But, you know, at at the very least, they're not being as effective with replacing these protections. So I thought that was a take that I hadn't heard. You're right, Alondra. Silver linings. What silver lining, but but really China's winning. And that was the other thing that I loved that she touched upon. Like China tried to derail the climate change negotiation in Copenhagen. China has been against putting in place these global regulations because they have gotten a lot of jobs from not having any climate regulations. I mean, when we went to Beijing, you could barely see your hand in front of you. And so she was talking about the economic repercussions of what they're doing now in taking that leadership position, both with this debate, but also Belt and Road Initiative. And I think it's something that not enough people are paying attention to, that China has actually beat Trump at this. We are not winning. And it will have long-term effects if we don't get back in the driver's seat and start taking control of the global conversation. You mean we're not tired of winning? (laughs) (sighs) Gina McCarthy was the perfect guest to have this week, especially as we still are basically choking on our air quality here in Los Angeles County. 
She's a giant in her field, and we're going to honor another giant that I'm sure comes as no surprise as our Pottis of the Week. The notorious RBG, may you rest in revolution. And for our shout out this week, we are shouting out Zendaya Coleman, who won an Emmy Award on Sunday for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series for her performance in the HBO show Euphoria. At 24, she is the youngest winner to ever take home the statue. It was a big upset that night. And she's also only the second black woman to win the Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actress. So congratulations to Zendaya. Well-deserved. Well, that's it for us this week. We hope you will join us again next week when we unpack the first presidential debate. It should be a lively one. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Bye, guys. 2020. (laughs) 